A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. I sing of a maiden. Anonymous. Modernised English version. I sing of a maiden that is matchless, the king of all kings, for her son she chose. He came as still where his mother was, as dew in April that falls on the grass. He came as still to his mother's bower as dew in April that falls on the flower. He came as still where his mother lay as dew in April that falls on the spray. Mother and maiden was never none but she. Well may such a lady, God's mother, B. Ye sing of a maiden, anonymous, original version. Ye sing of a maiden that is makales, king of alle kinges to her son cheches. E came also stilla there his mother was, as do in aprilla that fallet on the grass. He came also stilla to his modres boor, as do in aprilla that fallet on the floor. He came also stilla there his moder lie, as do in aprilla that fallet on the spry. Moder and maiden was never none but che. Well, my sweet shaladi, God is moder be. So, unusually, we have two versions of today's poem. I first read you a modernised version to help you get the gist of it, and then I read the original medieval text, the Middle English version, with the original pronunciation, at least as far as scholars can reconstruct it and I can pronounce it. We are very lucky to have this poem. It is preserved in just one manuscript, with no author's name given. The manuscript is dated to about 1400, but it's quite possible that the poem itself is a fair bit older than that. 
It's called the Sloan Manuscript, and it contains the text of several other wonderful medieval poems. So we may well be returning to that manuscript at some point on the podcast. Okay, let's take a closer look at the poem. The first line gives us a clue to its original function. I sing of a maiden. So, the first two words, I sing, tell us that it was set to music and sung. The original tune has been lost, but lots of composers and artists have made up for this since by writing their own musical settings for it, including Gustav Holst, Benjamin Britten, and the medieval babes. And no, I am not going to try to sing it. (laughs) I know my limits. I will talk about it as a lyric, which is excellent in its own right. But let's remember that it was written to be sung. So, its form is a song, and the second line gives us a clue to its subject. I sing of a maiden that is matchless. So, the original Middle English word, makales, meant unequaled, unparalleled, unique, matchless in the sense that no one else could match her. And so far, so clichéd, because lots of medieval love poetry was about pure maidens who had no equal in the poet's eyes. But the next two lines make it clear that this was no ordinary matchless maiden. The king of all kings, for her son she chose. So clearly the subject is the Virgin Mary, the mother of Jesus, who was the son of God as well as of Mary. And the reference to the divine birth edges this song towards the category that we would now label Christmas carols. So I thought it would be a nice choice for this, the Christmas 2022 episode of A Mouthful of Air. So the fact it's about the Virgin Mary brings out another meaning of the word makales, mateless, without a mate, without a partner, because of course she conceived Jesus with no partner but God. And it's not the same word, but it's also not a huge leap from makales to immaculate, which meant without sin, without blemish or imperfection, an adjective that was frequently applied to Mary. Now, in the New Testament, this subject, the conception of Jesus, is treated rather differently. We get the famous scene of the Annunciation, where the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and tells her that she is going to be the mother of the Christ child, the saviour of the world. But the poet doesn't give us that whole story. He or she gives us a song about a maiden, a virgin who was also a mother, which is a paradox since those states were biologically incompatible. In the biblical version, the Annunciation is, as you can imagine, an astonishing, overwhelming experience for Mary. It conveys the sense that she has been honoured and chosen by God from among all other women. But in this version, it's almost as if the roles have been reversed. The poet tells us that she has chosen the king of all kings, i.e. Jesus, to be her son. The king of all kings, for her son she chose. 
Now, technically, this is still quite orthodox. As the medieval scholar Derek Pearsall put it, the emphasis on Mary's freedom of choice at the moment of the Annunciation is theologically strictly proper. Well, theologically, that may be so. But poetically, the effect of the poet's choice of syntax is to make Mary a much more central, active figure than the passive recipient of God's grace that we get in the New Testament. And you might think, well, Mark, that's a bit of a fine distinction, but this is a poem of fine and subtle distinctions that are handled with great skill by the poet. And let's face it, this is a delicate subject. The conception of a divine child, the Christ child, by a virgin, via a mysterious process of divine intervention. So, how does the poet address this delicate subject? With a simile, a poetic comparison, in which one thing is explicitly said to be like another. The poet tells us that Jesus appeared inside his mother as stiller, as still, as quietly, as softly, and as unobtrusively as dew in April. He came as still where his mother was, as dew in April that falls on the grass. It's an image that is as natural as it is beautiful and mysterious. It's also quite likely that the poet took it from a scriptural source, Psalm 72, verse 6. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass, as showers that water the earth. But the poet doesn't just borrow this image, he or she embroiders and extends it delightfully. He came as still where his mother was, as dew in April that falls on the grass. He came as still to his mother's bower, as dew in April that falls on the flower. He came as still where his mother lay, as dew in April that falls on the spray. Isn't this magical? It's basically the same stanza repeated three times, the repetition giving it the power of incantation. But as well as repetition, we also get subtle and pleasing variation in the successive images of the grass, the flower and the spray, i.e. the flowering branch. And those are all rhyme words, of course, Grass rhymes with was, not so much in modern English, but in Middle English, grass was a nice full rhyme for was. Flower rhymes with bower, and lay rhymes with spray. And I think it's a safe bet that the poet began with the plant images and then went back and found other words to rhyme with them, rather than the other way round. How do I know that? Because Poets often start with the rhyme words and then work backwards to get the rest of the poem to fit. Half of the point of a rhyme word is to end your line, and in this case your stanza as well, with a word that is significant and striking and will linger in the ear when we hear it and in the mind's eye when we read it. 
And what the poet has given us here is three beautiful stanzas, all ending in plant words, grass, flower, and spray. It's like three panes of a stained glass window, or three blocks of a sculpted column with different plant motifs giving a delightful variety as well as unity. If we compare these three words, grass, flower, and spray, with their rhyming words, was, bower, and lay, then it's obvious that the poet didn't start with was, bower, and lay, because there's no theme uniting those three words. There's no way you would start with was, bower, and lay, and think, fantastic, these three work really well together. Now what can I find to rhyme with them? And even if you did, then it would be a pretty startling coincidence, would it not, if all three of your rhyme words just happened to be the names of different types of plant. So what we have here is a poet taking an image of water falling on the grass, probably lifted from Psalm 72, and playing variations on the theme. And the effect is like looking at a stained glass window or a series of church carvings. Simplicity, clarity, and luminosity. Then, after these three stanzas, we get to the final one, which is an explicit restatement of the paradox introduced in the first stanza. Mother and maiden was never none but she. Well may such a lady God's mother be. So she is both mother and maiden, and because of this she is unique, was never non but che. There was never anyone like this except her. It's like the answer to a riddle, and we have encountered quite a few poems like this on the podcast, but this time it is a divine riddle. A divine mystery, which for the faithful, let us remember, was not a problem to be solved, but an unfathomable certainty. And again, God is Moder, the mother of God, was a traditional title of the Virgin Mary. So it was theologically uncontroversial in the medieval Catholic context in which this poem was written. But grammatically, of course, it suggests that the mother came before God, that she was older and of greater authority than the God she gave birth to. And this title, as well as the veneration of Mary per se, was one of the things that the later Protestant reformers objected to, and it was swept away during the Reformation, a few centuries after this poem was written. So, this poem is a relic of an England that has disappeared. This was a Catholic England, where hymns and prayers to Mary, the Mother of God, were sung in churches full of stained glass and paintings and gold and incense. And it would be easy to romanticise this England, but of course there was also plenty of corruption in the medieval church, which was one reason for the Reformation. But theology aside, to me there's also a simplicity and a kind of innocence about this poem that faded from English poetry once the Renaissance and the Reformation had done their work, not to mention clever poets like Shakespeare and Dunn and Milton and Dryden. By the time we get to the 17th and 18th centuries, England was a different country, 
We were well on the way to the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution, and you would risk being laughed at for writing something as simple and apparently artless as this. At the end of the 18th century, of course, as we saw in episodes 32 and 34, Wordsworth and Coleridge made a deliberate attempt to recover what had been lost by simplifying the language of poetry in order to get back to its roots. But by then, it was an antiquarian pursuit, driven by romantic nostalgia. The poem we are looking at today was one of the originals. And you can hear the gap between the old world and the new one in the difference between the two versions of the poem that I've read for you today. The original, or at least my attempt at recreating the original, sounds very strange to our ears. And that's because of something called the Great Vowel Shift, a radical change in the way English was pronounced, which occurred between about 1400 and 1700. If you'd like to hear the Great Vowel Shift for yourself, then at this point in the transcript for this episode, I am including a link to an amazing video by the scholar Simon Roper, a London accent from the 14th to the 21st centuries. In this video, he has recorded himself talking in a series of reconstructed English accents every 50 years, from the 1300s up to 2006. So, if you focus on the years 1400 to 1700 in particular, you will hear how the sound of English changed fundamentally during that period. And certainly to us today, Middle English looks and sounds almost like a foreign language. And as a poet, when I compare the original version of this poem with the modernised one, I can't help hearing the gulf between those two worlds. The old medieval world of miracles and wonders and the new rational and sophisticated post-Reformation England. So, when you hear the two versions of the poem again in just a moment... Listen for that gap and see if you can catch something of the spirit of that older world in the original version. OK, we are almost at the end of 2022, the first full year of A Mouthful of Air. So, I would like to take a moment to thank you for listening to the show. It really means a lot to me whenever I hear from a listener, whether that's an email or a review or a comment or even a like on Twitter. You know, I make this show to share the poems I love. That's the point of the show. And it's a wonderful thing to know that you are listening and enjoying the poems. So, as we listen again, I would like to dedicate the poem to you and to wish you a very Merry Christmas. I sing of a maiden, 
Anonymous, modernised English version. I sing of a maiden that is matchless, the king of all kings, for her son she chose. He came as still where his mother was, as dew in April that falls on the grass. He came as still to his mother's bower, as dew in April that falls on the flower. He came as still where his mother lay, as dew in April that falls on the spray. Mother and maiden was never none but she. Well may such a lady God's mother be. Ye sing of a maiden, anonymous, original version. Ye sing of a maiden that is makales, king of alle kinges to her son Cheches. He came also stilla, there his mother was, as do in aprilla that fallet on the grass. He came also stilla to his mother's boor, as do in aprilla that fallet on the floor. He came also stilla, there his mother lie, as do in aprilla that fallet on the spry. Moder and maiden was never none but che. Well, my sweet shaladi, God is moder be. Ye sing of a maiden. I Sing of a Maiden, is an anonymous medieval text preserved in a manuscript that has been dated to round about the year 1400. Anonymous works are often marked in anthologies with the abbreviation Anon. Virginia Woolf once wrote, I would venture to guess that Anon, who wrote so many poems without signing them, was often a woman and imagined her making the ballads and the folk songs, crooning them to her children, beguiling her spinning with them, or the length of the winter's night. Following Wolfe's playful suggestion, if we imagine a non to be a single person of whatever gender, we could make a credible case that they are the greatest and the most prolific writer in English. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of Every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, you can sign up for this at a mouthful of air.fm slash subscribe.
If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links as well as a full episode archive at a mouthful of air.fm. The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler. Sound production is by Breaking Waves and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative, with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem.